Welcome to the Vine Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to do a little bit of a preview and introductory conversation to the book of Leviticus, because that's what we all need a little more of in our life, is the book of Leviticus. (laughs) And so this Sunday, we're going to begin a sermon series um, on Leviticus, and so We're going to have kind of an introductory conversation to that today, and I'll explain a little more about what we're going to do and how we're going to do that. But first, I'll bring in the other two people joining me for this conversation today. So I'm joined again today by Rachel Tate Yatour. That did it again. I've been practicing that. Yatour. Yatour. Yeah, that was good. I know, and Uh, I've been practicing that. And then my Texas just takes over, and I want to emphasize the tour of it. It's better than what I got called on another call yesterday, which was Yatter. So it's not Yatter. 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 I did it again. I did it. I did it right once. We'll just go with that. Yeah, it counts. All right. So Rachel's here. Yeah, I'm here. (laughs) Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. (laughs) And making his return to the Vine podcast is Terry Rasco. I can say Rasco just fine. Yeah, you got that right. Although I'm often called Roscoe or Rascal, uh, and I tell people it's Rasco like Tabasco. <laughs> All right. Very good. Mine's easy, just Warren Gray. That's it. And um, so. Yeah, not black or white, just gray. No, yeah, that's it. All right, so. We are, we're going to kick around Leviticus for a little bit today. And so. Leviticus, I think, basically, we're going to, we need to lay some groundwork for a book like Leviticus. And so that's what today's podcast is going to be. It's also what this Sunday's sermon is going to be. And, and I think both of those in my mind are kind of basically going to try to at least address the question of why, why does this matter? Why should I care about studying Leviticus? Why is it important? And in my mind, at least, I, th- I think this may be a little bit of a more kind of technical conversation about some of it, but, but thinking about it in maybe a little bit of, di- of a different way, part of how I've been thinking about it is, I think today's conversation, at least in some of the stuff that I'll kind of share and talk about, will kind of look at why it was important to the Israelites at the time, and then maybe this Sunday we'll kind of lean more towards why it is important for us currently. And those will have some overlapping elements, that there are reasons why it was important to the Israelites that still make it important to us. Um, but there are, I think, some differences for that as, as well, especially as we find ourselves today on, on sort of the other side of Jesus, if you will, and which, which kind of impacts our, our relationship to the book, certainly. And so we're going to look at some of that, and I've got some stuff that I'll present today, but we're also just going to kind of have a conversation amongst the three of us as we kind of get into the study and, and conversation about Leviticus. And so we'll toss some stuff around today in conversation and, and see where we can go with it. So Rachel and, and Terry, I thought maybe we'd start with with just kind of getting your initial perspectives um, so I'd be curious to know, just as you hear, okay, we're going we're gonna to engage a sermon series on Leviticus. What are just your initial thoughts, reactions to that? And, and maybe let's just kind of start there. I think this is fantastic. Um, it's a book that I probably read through for the first time this year, <laughs> like to actually read through the whole thing. And I felt like 
it, it just had so, so much that was actually interesting. And I felt like I started to understand its purpose a little bit more. And I think that it gives us a better understanding of the Old Testament as a whole and, and also the Pentateuch and the life of the Israelites. So I'm really excited. And I know that you're going to bring it in the sermons, that it's going to be we'll constructive see. for our lives, too. <laughs> so when did you read through it? I don't know what month it was, uh, maybe February or some March, possibly. It was earlier this year. Did you just do that on your own? Just I was using the Read Scripture app um, where you go through the whole Bible, and mm-hmm. it's from the Bible Project, and there's some embedded videos, but I didn't have internet then, so I mostly didn't get the videos. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, that's interesting that uh, Rachel talks about, you know, reading it as part of the Read Through the Bible, and it's been my perspective that that tends to be the point where most Christians get derailed. You know, they're going, I'm going to read through the Bible. You know, Genesis and Exodus flows really well. They like the stories and then boom, they slam into Leviticus and well, okay, maybe I'll skip to the New Testament. (laughs) But uh, I read a comment that said uh, Leviticus is the first book that Jewish children study, but the last book that Christian adults look at. So, (laughs) but uh, Mm. I love the Old Testament and the Old Testament stories. And while I I, I don't tend to just read through it uh, from first to end, I do incorporate it because especially if you're reading the narrative of the Exodus story and the life of Moses, and I've done studies on that before, uh, it goes in and out of Leviticus, and Leviticus is a big chunk of, of course, I know what you're going to talk about, which is what happened at Sinai, and as Rachel said, you know, I think as a Christian, I can understand the perspective, since we live under grace, why study the law in detail, but really it's hard to understand the sacrifice of Jesus and the whole atonement and sacrificial system without digging into it and looking at the various laws as they're described in Leviticus and and also making you very thankful we're not under that system right now. So, I, I like Rachel, I'm looking forward to the series. Yeah, I, I certainly do think that it it, it can... Uh, give us a, a greater sense of a, appreciation and and sort of depth of understanding as in terms of of Jesus and and what he did and and what was accomplished by his his life death and and resurrection and and yeah I I actually had that line in my sermon for for Sunday Terry about about Leviticus uh, ending ending many journeys th- attempts to read through the Bible so now. <laughs> I may have to take that out now, but uh, <laughs> I'll keep it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think there there are probably a lot of people who have attempted that and made it made it through Exodus, and and then you get to Leviticus and things just fall apart because it it's a slog to get through. And and I think you know, as you said, I I, I enjoy the Old Testament too, but but I'm certainly more drawn to the narrative bits of the Old Testament and and there are so many compelling narratives and and sort of sweeping dramas in in the Old Testament and I mean some of the stories in the Old Testament are just they're so full of corruption and deception and intrigue and drama that I mean you know they they rival things that 
you know, t- to us seem overly dramatic on, on some of our TV shows and movies and things. But but Leviticus is just, it just can be, it can feel so boring, I think, with just law after law. But, you know, I it, I heard one, or I, one of the writers that I've been reading kind of leading up to this series talked about how you, when you get to the underlying uh, propelling factors, the things that are driving these rituals, it it itself is very rich just as the narratives are. It's just that in Leviticus, it is the rituals and the laws that drive the narrative instead of, you know, kind of traditional narrative or stories like we would be used to in some of the other stories. And it's easier, I think, a lot of times for us to kind of draw out the application from from a narrative-driven story. And it's it's harder to do that when when all you're given is kind of this law. But but when you do that and, and when you look at the root of some of it, it's packed with information about God and about his love for us and and about the community that he envisions us cultivating amongst ourselves and with him. And and all of that I think is still relevant and applicable to us, even as people who are not quote unquote under Levitical law. So hopefully we'll be able to bring some of that out in this series. We'll see. Yeah, it yeah, it almost feels like Leviticus should be like a, a reference book, you know, that you keep on your shelf. And if you don't understand this reference and some other passage about why were they doing that sacrifice, you could pull out Leviticus reference book and, you know, read about it. But to read it from start to finish as you would a, a story, um, again, I don't think Cecil B. DeMille's will ever do a movie about Leviticus. So, you know, it just doesn't have a Ten Commandments kind of feel to it. What was that name that you said? <laughs> oh, the, the old uh, um, Ten Commandments movie was okay. Cecil B. DeMille's. I think you so dated yourself there. I, I probably did. But if, <laughs> but if you ever watch the old Charlton Heston the Ten young, Commandments movie. The young people in the Zoom call didn't recognize that name. <laughs> Okay, I know my dad knows what you're talking about, but <laughs> the night I, I recognize the name Charlton Heston, but uh, yeah, you can edit this part out. <laughs> no, we'll leave it in. It's good. Uh, um, well, yeah, I think it's interesting, Terry, that you mentioned that that this is the. I think that's a good kind of framing of the book. That it's what did you say? It's the first book that Jewish kids would have read, but the last book that that adult Christians read. Is that basically what you said? Yeah, I mean. Jewish children needed to study the law. I mean, their whole system, their calendar, everything, their life is built around this book because it describes the festivals, the sacrifices, and in order for them to understand the punctuation of life, they have to know these sacrifices. They have to know about the priesthood, about uh, all the different aspects of their uh, Jewish calendar. And for us, it just doesn't feel as relevant, I guess. Right, absolutely. And I think that's that's part of what I wanted to, to kind of go over and discuss today is that if you look at the, the structure of the Pentateuch, um, Leviticus carries a lot of weight and and there's a tremendous amount of emphasis and importance placed on on Leviticus within the structure of the Pentateuch. And so that kind of gets to, okay, so why why was this important uh, for Jewish people, for the Israelites at the time even? And 
so the Pentateuch is, is the first five books of, of what we would call the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Leviticus falls right in the middle of that. Uh, but from a narrative perspective, that would mean that it was sort of the climax of the Pentateuch, and it's what everything before that has been building to, and it's what everything after that kind of is is descending from. So it's this like literal mountaintop moment in that it also takes place on Mount Sinai, and so it is literally on a mountain, and if you kind of picture the Pentateuch as a mountain, it kind of starts at the base in Genesis and works its way up to Leviticus and then kind of descends from there. And so everything about the structure of the Pentateuch places this, this narrative and, and literary importance on Leviticus. And, and so if you look at the structure of everything around it then, uh, Genesis and Deuteronomy seem to kind of mirror each other, that both of those books end with, with a patriarch blessing the 12 tribes before dying outside of, of kind of the, the, the land that their people are going to inhabit. Um, and that's Jacob in, in Genesis and, and Moses in Deuteronomy. Uh, Exodus and Numbers also have many parallel events. And, and so kind of taking both of those things into account, this is a quote from a book called, I've got the book here somewhere, uh, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? This is a book by L. Michael Morales. And so this is a quote from him in this book where he says, In the concentric structure of the Pentateuch, parallels between Exodus and Numbers suggest they constitute a frame for Leviticus. Parallels for Genesis and Deuteronomy not only frame Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers thematically, they also provide the beginning and conclusion to the linear sequence of the entire Pentateuchal narrative. This leaves Leviticus occupying the narrative center of the Pentateuch. Uh, so sort of it's, it's without parallel in the Pentateuch. It is the center of it. It is literally the mountaintop moment. And, and it seems to, to really be the climactic element um, of, of those five books. And I think you can, you can continue that out a little bit then when you look at how much of the Pentateuch is devoted to what happens at Sinai. And so if you look just kind of, for instance, the book of Genesis... Uh, from a narrative standpoint, covers about 2,700 years. We could get into old earth, new earth, you know, all that's not necessarily our conversation for today, but just from a narrative perspective, uh, you, you know, it, it covers about 2,700 years. And those 2,700 years make up about 25% of the Pentateuch. So you've got a quarter of the Pentateuch devoted to 2,700 years, which is a long period of time. Uh, Conversely, the Israelites spend about a year on Mount Sinai, and that's where they receive the law from God. It's where God's presence comes to, to rest on the mountain and all of that. Uh, everything that happens at Sinai takes about a year. And that year occupies about 42% of the Pentateuch. Uh, that year happens from about Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. And, and so you've got an incredible... You know, that one year is given incredible significance if you just look at the amount of space that it occupies in the Pentateuch. That if you look at the timeline, that one year should just be this little blip on the timeline. But instead, it occupies about 40% of the total content of the Pentateuch, which seems to point to this idea that, hey, this stuff is really important. You need to pay attention to what's going on here. 
And then even within that, Leviticus is the only book of the Pentateuch that takes place completely at Sinai. Exodus, you have them arriving there. At Numbers, they leave. Um, but, but Leviticus takes place just completely at Sinai. And so if you look at it from a Jewish perspective, everything about the book of Leviticus, even, even when you look at the center of the, of the book of Leviticus itself, which is the Day of Atonement, everything points to the, the centrality and, and importance of Leviticus for the people and for that time and for the, how they went about life and for how they went about ultimately connecting to God. So... I'll pause there and see if y'all have any thoughts on any of that. I, uh, I think you and I have talked before, Warren, uh, as I was going through Genesis, that whole idea of stories having a beginning, a middle, and an end are really common. And you look at the, the way stories are laid out and you see repetition uh, among the stories about, you know, Abraham uh, telling Pharaoh that, uh, you know, this is my, Sarah's my, my sister. And then you see the same thing with his offspring doing similar things. And, you know, it's like these repetitive stories. And, and so again, that building up to a central theme and then uh, expanding the story beyond that. And I, I really can relate to what you're saying that Leviticus is that center point in the Pentateuch. It, it's the thing that everything leads to and then leads away from uh, because the giving of the law becomes the most central aspect of who they are as a holy nation. And I think it's reflected in the Psalms when the psalmist, you know, used very flowered language talking about, you know, the, the law of the Lord. And, you know, it's language that I think would seem strange today to say, oh, my Bible is sweet like honey. You know, <laughs> you know, no matter how devoted you are as a New Testament Christian, I, you know, I don't hear Christian writers talk about, you know, reading the New Testament like it, it tastes like honey in their mouth. Yet yeah, that's the psalmist talk about the law of the Lord in that same kind of a terms, which reflects how important the law was to the Jewish nation. I definitely think it shows that this is crucial to their identity. And I wonder if maybe they took some pride in the fact that with other gods, there was a lot of guesswork in what does your God actually want you to do? Does he want child sacrifice or does he want this type of relationship? Or, But with God, the uniqueness in his grace is that he actually spells it out for his people. He calls them and gives them specific instructions. And so I think for the people of Yahweh, there's some relief. Like even though there's specific things they have to follow, it's like at least we know what our God wants. And the pathway to blessing is clearly laid out for us. Unlike with other gods, we're just kind of guess and check. <laughs> yeah, I think that's such a great point because I do think I think keeping keeping cultural context in mind is so important with a book like Leviticus because there are pieces of Leviticus that we can look at and say, this seems oppressive, this seems restrictive, this seems barbaric. Um, when, when in actuality, yeah, I think that their perspective in, in many ways was probably, yeah, exactly what you said, that at least at least we know what to expect because there would have been this, yeah, this uncertainty certainly with with 
with how to approach other gods. And even the idea that Leviticus is this invitation from an all-knowing God for people to draw near to him was was sort of revolutionary that you you mean we you mean God is inviting us to dwell with him to be with him to share life with him that wasn't something that that was that was thought of in pagan cultures to be even even a choice uh even even an option and and so yeah I think I think that's that's a great point to to remember and to keep in mind as we as we read through this book and and consider what what they're called to do and and why they're called to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I uh I really like what Rachel just said about, you know, and what you were saying about the culture and about knowing what God's expectations are of the people. Uh when you look at the description of how the Israelites what their camp looked like, you know, they have all the nations all lined up in this very almost militarized uh, area where all the camps are built around and then right in the center is the tabernacle where God you know resides and so literally in a very concrete way God was in their midst in the center of their nation and um, you know the expectations Warren you said sometimes may almost sound barbaric but I think that is very important to know that this is a an enslaved nation that's coming out that they're experiencing freedom for the first time as a nation and it's critical that they have some judicial structures in place and you know things that you know what we would call an eye for eye type laws were actually a, a way to limit you know that aggression not not right. to make it worse you know and so it's really kind of that uh you did this you cannot escalate this and you know they they took a cow from you. You can't go in and wipe out the entire family over one cow. You know they owe you one cow. That's the deal. So again, I I, I see it as setting parameters, and as Rachel said, just giving them expectations of what a holy nation. You know what we would call a holy nation is to look like. And 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 I think as as we keep all of those things in mind, I th- I think it. Um... It, it really is, it, it's a book about this, this holy people, these people who are called to be holy. And, and that's where I even think in some ways, you know, there are many reasons why, why we as a sort of modern day American Christians probably overlook this book or, or skip it, either because we, we don't think it's relevant or we're not, we don't, you know, we're not under the law, so why do I need to know it? Or it's, it's boring or it seems barbaric, whatever the reasons. And I think the the name Leviticus almost kind of lends itself to that, and and that's why I ended up. Uh, so the name of the series is Vaikra, um, and Vaikra is is at least my um, my Texan American way of pronouncing what what the Hebrews call the book, which comes from the first Hebrew word of the book, which means "and he called." Uh, and God called, not not a person named Andy, not Andy called, and He called, <laughs> um, and and so that's what Jewish people know the book as that it is this expression of God reaching out and inviting His people into community, and somewhere along the way it picks up the English name of Leviticus uh, because there is this thought that it's mostly pertaining to Levitical law. That it's about kind of you know uh, yeah the, the Levitical code and and I think then it kind of even carries this assumption that this is mostly for Levitical priests 
and this is sort of priestly language and priestly laws. And so not, not, not only is it completely disconnected from me, but it's even another layer of disconnect because it's for the priests. And so not only is it not relevant for me in what it t- talks about, but it's even like a subset of, of the past. It's for priests. Um, when really it's, it's not a priestly manual in, in that it, it wasn't specifically meant for priests. It's about the community. It's about the, how the community together can enact holiness and, and can, can, uh, can draw near to God and, and can, uh, can participate in life with God. And, and so the priests are a part of that, but the community as a whole is a part of that. And there are things that the community has to do, even associated with the priestly rituals. And, and it's, it's, it's all about the, the community together. And, and I think that's missed if, if even looking back on it, we just see it as kind of this priest you know, user manual, basically. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, even the, the name Leviticus can cause us to, to look at it maybe with a little bit of, of slanted view that sort of does ourselves a, d- a disservice as we go about trying to explore it. Hmm. That's interesting that you have talked about it being a possible manual for priests, because I feel like it's so communally written, like it's, it's engaged engaging the whole community of Israel because there's instructions for the people on what sacrifices to bring and what to do if they have an infection or how to respond to a mistake they've made, how to treat the foreigner, the pathway to blessing versus the pathway to cursing. Like, I just see it so differently. I mean, I guess the the role of the priest is quite strong and he's the one offering the sacrifices and maybe the one checking the skin infection and things like that. But I just feel like it's so all-encompassing for the whole community of Israel. Yeah, I agree. Unfortunately, some of that only comes out when we sit down and read it. <laughs> and as Terry said, you know, a lot of times we do treat Leviticus as somewhat of a reference book that, that you know, it's, it's just, it's not an easy one to sit down on the back porch and, and, and open up Leviticus as it would be to just sit down and, you know, open up John and, and, and read through John or something and... Yeah, I agree. I, but by, I think because of our disassociation with it and because of our lack of familiarity with it, I think it gets sort of like typecast sometimes as only pertaining to Levitical priests. And that I think the name kind of even lends itself to that. Well, yeah. maybe what? in this series, we can see how it's for all of us. It was for all of Israel and even still speaks to us as a community of believers. That's my hope. Yeah, what what's the name again in Hebrew, Warren? Vaikra. Which is just a much more fun word to say than Leviticus. Leviticus sounds boring. You can't say Vaikra in a boring way. Yeah, I I it sounds like a medical product to me, but uh... well, <laughs> I have been concerned about that myself and how I was going to say it. But <laughs> So thank you. Thank you for reinforcing that idea in my head. Well, okay, Leviticus does address issues in that department. Um, not sure if you'll touch on that, but the ethical way of following this, you know, encompasses every aspect of your life. I know that's not what you're trying to get at with the title, but no, it's, it's not our holiness but, uh, in every aspect of our beings. That's right. There are so many ways this conversation could just uh, go, go downhill from here, but we will resist those. Uh, <laughs> 
Carry it back up the mountain, Warren. Yeah. I was going to say, I had a thought earlier when you were saying something, Terry, and I, I lost it, and then I just remembered it. That uh, when to take it back to the barbaric nature of Leviticus, uh, um, that I do think I know that's a common question that people have is like, well, why why is there so much killing and bloodshed? What's up with all the blood? And and we'll get to some of that in the series. But I think just on on a surface level, kind of again to t- to think contextually about it, I do think it's worth keeping in mind that if if we as people in our current context and culture were aware of the amount of animal death and bloodshed that happened to just uh, take care of all of our meals for a day in our current culture, um, it would seem much more barbaric <laughs> that that we, we, we kill and, and a lot of animals and there's a lot of bloodshed that still happens it's just completely disconnected from our everyday lives in a way that it wasn't in that culture. It was just a part of, of what you did as, as part of life. It wasn't disconnected from everyday life the way that it is for most of us in our culture today. And so I think even an aspect of it that seems very barbaric um, is, is just kind of a different way of, of living and something that we're not used to. And, and that, again, if, if I had to, you know, go about killing all of my meat that I ate, for one thing, I would become a vegetarian very quickly, and my life would immediately seem more barbaric if I didn't, I don't think. So. Uh, wow. That's something I've never thought of before in that, like, yeah, because... I'm pretty squeamish. And so reading about all the sacrifices is a bit off-putting to me, but I know that there is purpose and meaning and, and symbolism and the atonement and what's happening there. But if I think of like just even my daily eating, <laughs> uh, if I were to be the one causing that bloodshed, would it be a holy thing to me? Would I think of it like ceremonially? And this is an offering to God, but also something that that is nourishing to me or is it just like I just got to eat this is what has to happen right how many times do we eat meat without thinking like an animal had to die for me to eat this I hate thinking about that I hate that like right. in Kenya when I see if I see the animal before it's slaughtered it's really hard for me to eat the meat and Ashley actually stopped eating meat for a while because of that she's the, the idea of just eating eating meat um just kind of became just weird for her. And then um, in a completely non-Jewish way, bacon brought her back and she, uh, <laughs> she now eats meat again. <laughs> so. That's so funny. Yeah. But I, the I amazing mean, thing, the priests actually eat the meat that they kill. Like right. it, it has the sacrificial and the spiritual aspect, but it literally nourishes like that is their, their sustenance. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it totally changes the feel of the scene when you, all of a sudden you're, there's going to be a celebration in the Bible and it's like, go kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. You know, and if every time you were going to have a party, you had to go out and kill an animal, uh, you know, it would, it would be a lot of cake and cupcakes probably <laughs> instead. Yes. I mean, it even feels weird to walk into a seafood restaurant that has a tank of lobsters and say, I want that one. You know, it just feels odd. 
I don't know if y'all are familiar with Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, but he, he has a bit about that and how he would it'd feel better if like the animal did something wrong or was a like, criminal or something. And, <laughs> <laughs> the idea of eating innocent animals, that's a bit of an issue, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, this conversation has gone several different directions and uh well we'll try to bring it back. Um the one other thing that I did want to kind of mention um is is again that I think it it seems to be kind of the central theme of Leviticus that it's it's this book about about God opening a way for for people to live in holy communion and community with with him. And and I think that's that's an idea that you see really expressed from the, from the very beginning of scripture. That's basically how Genesis starts, right? God wants to live in um in, in very intimate ways with his creation, with his prized creation. Um, and, and he creates this beautiful garden in which he lives with his prized creation, and they mess it up. And, and that becomes really the dominant picture, you could really say, I think, for the rest of Scripture, that, that God is desiring intimacy with his people, and people in various ways keep rebelling against that, pushing against that, um, pride, arrogance, sin, um, all those other things kind of keep getting in the way of that um, re- repeatedly and in different ways. And, and yet, so, so throughout sort of Jewish language, you have this, this idea and this sort of this ideal picture of, of dwelling with God and that being like the picture of, of kind of completeness and peace and, and, and fullness of life. And, and so you see that a lot in the Psalms, especially, which kind of give us, you know, this insight into a lot of kind of uh, thought or, or about kind of people and, and believers of that day where, where you have David, for instance, in Psalm 23 saying, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's like, that's pictured as, as sort of the ideal. Uh, same thing in Psalm 16. It says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And we could keep going with a lot of examples of these, but the last one from Psalm 24 says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And so repeatedly that's held up as like this sort of ideal life and 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 something to attain and something to work toward and and yet throughout the psalms there's also this this sort of conflict this tension that's present within that this this issue or this problem that arises with this question of okay this is the ideal but how do we go about attaining that and and so that question is is something else that comes up again throughout the psalms so in psalm 15 it says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? There's that mountain language again. And in Psalm 24, right before that verse that I read earlier, it says the same thing. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And so within the Psalms and within Jewish thought in general, you've got kind of this tension of this understanding of this ideal kind of place of being being to to dwell in the presence of the Lord, to dwell on the mountain of God, to dwell in his tent. And and yet there's this tension with that of, yeah, but who can do that? Who can attain that? How do we get there? 
And, and I think that tension, that issue, is really what Leviticus is seeking to address. And, and again, even though we may have some differences in how we approach God through Jesus and, and the path that is open to us through Jesus, there's still much that we can learn about, about coming into the presence of a holy God and, and about what he desires for us as we, as we look back at Leviticus. I think that is so beautiful. To me, I see the desire of God to dwell together with his people as one of the major biblical themes of the entire story. So you opened it with Genesis, and I think Revelation closes it, and it says, Behold, the home of God is with man. And so there's always been this this striving for, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Those were the words of the covenant. And I think this is where Uh, from Exodus and on, we see that this is always God's heart, was to be in close relationship with his people. And he gets his heart broken, but he keeps pushing for it over and over again by, by his grace. And in the end, we see that this goal is achieved. He does get to have fellowship with his people, but it's, it's through his washing and making us holy. Yeah, I, I, I like that imagery as well, Rachel. And even even uh, in the Sinai story where God is in their midst, there is a separation, a certain degree that people can only get so close. And then sin is the the barrier that keeps them out. And, you know, so you only have Aaron and then his, his sons being able to actually enter in that presence. Or Moses, who was actually a Levite as well. You know, he's Aaron's brother, so he's from the Levitical priesthood as well, um, being able to enter into God's direct presence. And then you just don't see that happening other than with the priesthood up until the, the death of Jesus. And and then this promise of the Holy Spirit, which is again, God dwelling actually in us. You know, it, so it, it what can be more in, intimate than that is God is not only with us, but he's in us. Yeah, and you mentioned Revelation, Rachel, and, and you do have there this, I think this beautiful turning of, of what happens there where, where for so much of scripture there's this idea like is expressed in the Psalms, right? Of of who can uh who can ascend to his holy place, who can uh who can dwell with you on your holy mountain. But then at in Revelation you've got this river of life that is flowing out and down from from the mountain of God, from the throne of God that is that is covering everything else. And, and I think that is, is, is this beautiful picture of the fulfillment of the kingdom and the fulfillment of what Jesus came to do to, to extend out to everyone um, what, what has been kind of broken and lost. And, and so that's one of the things that I will kind of bring out in, in the sermon is that I think there's, there's this interesting flip that happens with Jesus where under the Levitical kind of codes right that if you if you touched anything impure or unclean that uncleanliness was transferred to you that you became unclean and you had to go through these kind of rituals and and kind of ceremonies in order to get clean again and and some of that happened because of sin but some of it just happened over the nor- the normal course of life right that if you if you come in contact with something or even like childbirth you know there were there were unclean aspects of, of something like childbirth, which is a natural part of life, but you would have to go through this 
these kind of rites of, of cleanliness after that, that fact. Uh, so there's this idea that if you come in contact with anything unclean, that uncleanliness is transferred to you. Uh, but when Jesus comes along, he flips that. And now all of a sudden, Jesus's purity and cleanliness is transferred to us. And, and when, Jesus, um, when Jesus touches things or people who are unclean, uh, their impurities, their uncleanliness is not transferred to them. Instead, his holiness is transferred to those people, which becomes this imagery then for us, that it's the same thing for us, that Jesus kind of turns all of that on its head. Um, which again, knowing the Leviticus stuff gives us some um, some history in that, and and gives us maybe some appreciation for the the, the truly like ways that what Jesus is doing just would have turned a Jewish culture on its head and and completely flipped their worldview, uh, because now all of a sudden it's it's Jesus's holiness and purity that we are clothed in. Uh, which then I think adds so much value to even like what, what happens with Peter and Acts, right? When, 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 when God comes and tells Peter nothing is unclean, um, all of that seems to be now transformed um, after, after Jesus and just causes them to look at everything through a completely different lens than they had before, before Jesus came on the scene. Yeah, there's one kind of question I have that I hope you might address during this sermon. It has to do with the issue of blood, because all through Leviticus, um, blood is either, you know, part of the sacrifice and something that makes clean. But then there's also instances in where blood is the thing you have to avoid, like don't touch blood or even the priests at certain sacrifices, they have to take the blood outside of the camp. So I wonder if you might address when Jesus tells people to drink his blood how that might have sounded to Jewish ears and uh, how he justifies making such a claim. Like, is it like instead of blood being the thing that defiles you, it's now what purifies you? Uh, something, uh, a kind of a, a thought that I had. Yeah, that's good. I don't have an answer today, but yeah. <laughs> cool. That's great. So more, more to come, well, I hope. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd certainly plan on on addressing some of the blood stuff, but I think that's a good connection to where to where Jesus talks about it. Uh, but I certainly think um, I like to think that sometimes I haven't. Uh, so this is just off the cuff. I think Jesus says things sometimes almost for shock value. Um, I don't know if that's sacrilegious. <laughs> uh, not that he didn't mean it, or not that it wasn't true. But I guess what I mean is I think sometimes Jesus knew how things were going to come across and that he knew how they were going to sound to people. And he said them anyways without softening the blow because he wanted it to kind of he wanted people to feel the impact of it. Um, I think I think I, I see him doing that a lot in like his Sabbath healings. Right. That like Jesus knew how the Pharisees were going to take that. Yeah. But he did it anyways on the Sabbath to sort of make a point. Right. That. That, that man is made for the Sabbath, not Sabbath for the man, right? Um, and, and I think, I th so I, I don't know, part of me thinks, you know, he knew, it, he knew the reaction he was going to get from some people when, when he said that. And that was almost maybe part of the point in doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's without trying to spiritualize it too much and read too much into uh, that statement when Jesus said, unless you drink my blood, you don't have any part of me, that... It's almost like up till that time, blood was being sprinkled or poured on individuals as part of a ceremony, as part of a consecration. And Jesus is saying that that's 
that's not even enough. You need to internalize this. It can't just be something that that is an external cleansing. It has to be a total internal uh, cleansing. It has to go down into your heart, a cleansing of the heart, because Jesus uses those analogies of being whitewashed tombs, but what's on, mm-hmm. on the inside was, was never washed. Uh, and again, that's probably turning it into something, it could be something like Warren said, that it's more the shock value of, uh, I want people to really think about why are they following me? Is it just because good stories and free lunch or, you know, are they really committed to me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like that imagery of of really internalizing it because yeah, I, I do think that connects to you know when Jesus talks, as you said, the the whitewashing stuff. But in you know, it's, I think it's in that same conversation where he says, you know, you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is 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 dirty. That you know, kind of what's the point? And that is a case where I think yeah, you can certainly see the ways by the by the time it gets to Jesus's day that that certainly. Um, there are certain populations of of Jewish people who have just completely misconstrued misconstrued the law and are are misapplying it, are abusing it in certain ways, and and so Jesus seems to be coming to to clarify some of that um, in addition to just um, to providing a path forward that that nothing under the law could. Um, because of the nature of the law itself and the, and the nature of what of what is offered to us through Jesus and through um, his blood. Yeah. Yeah, I think this, uh, Rachel's question about the whole prohibition of blood, touching blood, consuming blood, eating meat that has the blood still in it. Um, I mean, that was so ingrained in Jewish culture and so taboo that you see that even the you know gentile christians being told because that is so pervasive among your jewish brothers and sisters you shouldn't do it either because you know that's that that's taught everywhere and that's that was one of the few things that gentiles were also you know just prohibited from blood uh you know it's kind of thrown in there with you know kind of being sexually pure and and abstaining from blood and and doing some of those things and now you see those laws loosening as paul's you know, later on, later on goes to say, well, that doesn't really, you know, matter as much. Just don't offend your weaker brother and, and a lot more laxity. But at least at first, you know, the whole thing was about trying to maintain unity and not pushing the people beyond what they were able to, to tolerate as far as their growth and maturity. Yeah. I have one more thought on blood and then I think I'll be done. (laughs) Okay. Um, So when in the, Leviticus, they're told, do not drink blood because the life is in it. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus says, drink my blood. So yeah. I think Jesus is making the point, my life is in this blood. Like for you to have abundant life, you have to have my life in you. Um, and so he's saying, this is the one instance in which, in which you should drink the blood because it gives you my life. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that's, that's the connotation of, of blood and the significance of blood with the sacrifices is that, yeah, life, uh, you know, we even use a, a term like life blood, you know, and, and that was life was, was thought to be within the blood of, of a person or an animal. And so when that blood is shed, it is as if the life of that animal is covering over the thing that is, is sort of um, 
bringing about the the encroachment of the realm of dead for for you or for whoever is impure because that's one of the ways that i kind of have read it explained is that the things that make you that make someone impure are the things that that kind of lead you towards death and not life right uh there there are things that would kind of be approaching the, this kind of this idea of, of realm of the, the the dead or impurity and so when the lifeblood of something is in is then covering or atoning for your impurity it is sort of restoring your life and and yeah jesus then again is the full embodiment of that and and his life is now completely covering us in in a way that as the hebrew writer said you know no no sacrifice, no no animal's blood ever ever could, and so it is very different in that way. Yeah, I um, I'm I think back to some of the subtleties that we're talking about the Pentateuch of when uh, Adam and Eve sin, and they first they cover themselves with leaves, and then when God finds them and they have that conversation, then God gives them animal skins, and you you just don't find animal skins laying around. You have to kill an animal to get a skin. And so here you have the people being covered, their sins are covered with the sacrifice of animals. And so I, you know, again, without trying to read too much into the story, that must have been uh, very saddening for Adam and Eve to know that some of their animals had to die because of their sinfulness. Yeah, and we read about Cain and Abel offering sacrifices, but there's nothing... Uh, or, or, you know, bringing their, their gifts to God, basically. But there's nothing commanded about that at that point. We don't have anything like Leviticus before that. And so it seems like this was a practice amongst them as a people, even even before we have anything like, like Leviticus or, or the laws. Um, and one, I, I had one final thought as well. And then if, if either of you have closing thoughts, you, you can close us out with anything else you have. But I'd um, this was connected to something that we had talked about earlier, that it's it's something that I've just kind of been kicking around. And so I don't, I don't fully know um, how all the pieces of this might fit or if I even might think the same way about this in a few weeks. But this is a podcast and it's a place to throw out things like this. So I'll throw it out. <laughs> but I think another way that maybe kind of misinterpretation of the law might have had an impact is that I think what you see is that, you know, under the Levitical law, if you were unclean, that was like a temporary state. And, and there were things that you could do to bring you back into a state of purity and cleanliness. But I think what happens over time is that there develops this idea that it, it's, it's not so much that you can do something that would make you temporarily unclean, but that certain people are unclean themselves. And that there are certain people and even certain people groups that are to be avoided because of their uncleanliness. And, and it seems like that's part of what Jesus comes to reverse and to, 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 to invite people to reimagine. And I think that's what God is getting at with Paul in, in I mean, with Peter in Peter's vision in, in Acts, when Acts, when, when, Paul, when Peter, man, I'm mixing up so many words here. <laughs> uh, when Peter has his vision, when he sees the animals coming down and, and God says, you know, here, come and eat and, Peter says, no, you know, I don't eat anything unclean. And, and God basically says, nothing that I have made is unclean. And it seems to me that's, that's part of getting back to this idea because Peter had this idea still that there were certain people that, that he should not associate with because of his cleanliness, because of his Jewishness. And, and, and I wonder if, if that was sort of this, this issue that, that 
through Jesus and, and through the grace of God is trying to kind of be cleared up there that it's not that people are, are unclean unto themselves, that there are things that we can do that might disconnect us from God or, or separate us from God. But there are no people in and of themselves who are unclean. And I think that would be a revolutionary thought. And I haven't worked it all out in my head yet, but it's something I've kind of been kicking around and thinking about. That's one of the major themes that we get in the New Testament is that this holiness that the Israelite people were able to experience through all their ritual is now available to everyone through Christ. And I think what you already referenced of his cleanliness now comes to all of us. So, yeah, I think that reading Leviticus helped us to understand the weight of that shift when we get to the New Testament, that the, mm. the state of holiness is now available to everyone, whereas before it was available to the Jewish people who were following um, the, the, the law set, set by God. So, yeah, I think that the story, one yeah. of the points at which Peter finalizes, oh, wait, so you mean like even Gentiles can experience this holiness and the relationship with God and the Holy Spirit too? Right, yeah. I, I see that, in, in fact, in Peter's writing in, in First Peter, where he said, you know, talking to people who've accepted Christ, that they're a chosen people, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And you have that exact same imagery of, you know, what the Jews were um, at Sinai, you know, being this chosen people, uh, a holy nation, and then them having set people who were royal priests, but now that's expanded to all of us are royal priests. And that exclusion of, well, you will be ceremonially unclean if you're around a Gentile uh, and then now you can't participate, that, that that exclusion is gone because as you said, Warren, that won't make us unclean to be around people that are not believers. In fact, it should be the opposite, that that, that holiness that we, that, that light that we uh, emanate through Christ should help to clean them and, and you know, they should be able to see uh, Christ through us, which makes them more clean. Um, but um, again, a lot to unpack in all of this and looking forward to the series. Yeah, well, that's probably a good place for us to wrap up for today. And um, I will say that just to kind of give a couple of references and uh, reference points, uh, part of what I had mentioned earlier, just kind of about our, our separation from blood and, and how we kind of, you know, just culturally maybe would, would think about that differently and just some of that, uh, that is a thought that I actually got from Rob Bell. Rob Bell has done a lot of work on Leviticus. Um, if, if anyone is interested in kind of doing some overview, um, more kind of interested in more of the overview and kind of background of Leviticus before we get started, there are several good videos on uh, the Bible Project site. You can go to YouTube, search the Bible Project. They've got a couple of overviews of Leviticus. They've also got a video on holiness that um, that is very informative for for this discussion, and that I'll I'll kind of use some of the concepts from that video in Sunday's sermon, and so I'll, I'll provide a link to that video at some point. Um, and they have several other videos that kind of would would speak to some of the concepts that we've been talking about here, and and so I'll I'll probably reference some of those or send out links to some of those at some point. But if you wanted to go digging around. Uh, you can go to the Bible Project's channel on YouTube and search for Leviticus or holiness or, or things around that. There's all kinds of, of information uh, there that is presented in, in very visually appealing ways and is, makes, makes some difficult concepts, I think, pretty digestible and, and, and easy to, to take in. 
So Terry and, and Rachel, thank you for, for participating in this with me today and adding your insight. Always good to, to be able to talk to both of you and, and have your perspective on these, these difficult topics and concepts. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, I always enjoy Rachel's concepts and, and the way she presents things. It, it's really helpful because, Warren, you and I get to chat now and then, but uh, I'm looking forward to chatting more with Rachel and getting to know her better as well. Thank you. You too. Yeah. So it's always weird. Uh, we're, we're recording this on Friday. It'll be released on Monday, after which point we there's, so there's a Sunday in between there. Um, so right now we're, we're thinking it will be good to see you, Rachel, on Sunday when you'll be here. But by the time this comes out, you know, if we were going to record this as if Sunday had already happened, we would say, it was so great to have seen you yesterday, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> so, but you never just, know. It might be terrible. So you probably shouldn't yeah. say this. That that feels weird to talk about something that hasn't occurred right. yet in the past. So So we will we will assume that it will be great to have met you. I think is the proper way to say that given our <laughs> Yeah. 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 All right, well we'll close there today. We um we typically close out these with a prayer. So Rachel, would you close us in in prayer today to kind of uh, bring it into our our discussion? Let's pray. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for your word and for how you instruct us and give us understanding, even from books like Leviticus that maybe we haven't spent as much time in. I pray over our sermon series and the way that Warren is teaching us that your anointing would be upon him, that you would give him wisdom and understanding to explain these things to us well and that ultimately we would understand the goal is to be in relationship with you and just thank you that you extend that grace. Even through this series that we would grow closer to you. Um, thank you for your holiness that allows us to be holy like you. In Jesus' name.